and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we are discussing The Black Stallion, the 1979 children's classic directed by Carol Ballard and based on Walter Farley's best-selling children's novel of the same name. Kelly Reno stars as Alec, a young boy who is shipwrecked off the coast of North Africa with a wild Arabian stallion. After he tames the horse known as the Black and they are eventually rescued by local fishermen, they return to his hometown in America where he works with a retired horse trainer, Henry Daly, played by Mickey Rooney, to turn the Black into a champion racecourse. Uh, thanks so much to Heather for requesting this episode via our Patreon. Um, I'd never seen it before and wasn't even really aware of its existence. And Yeah, I've never great. heard of it. And I- I was really pleasantly surprised by how interesting and unusual this film is. Yeah, so um, this was a great request. If you would like to force us to watch something of your choice, you may do that by pledging on Patreon. Um, you can find the details at our Patreon. I'm, I'm pretty sure also if people want to watch this film and they've not seen it, it was definitely on UK Netflix. Is it on US Netflix too? It is on Amazon Prime. Okay. So also accessible. If you were expecting an Avengers episode this week, uh, you can find a mini-sode in which we discuss it on Patreon, because I have not seen it, because I don't care. So the episode is me telling Morgan what happens in the film. Yes. To frequent hilarity. (laughs) Yes, quite giddy, because you had not slept at all. (laughs) Very entertaining stuff. I'll see it in a month and a half, fully spoiled, because, again, I don't care. So instead, we're talking about an art film for children from 1979 this week. Um, Our last announcement for the top of the show is that we are going to do our first book club episode of the year at the end of May, on May 22nd specifically. We will be discussing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I think will be a hit with many of you. Nice short, short book. Yes. So I had put a poll up um, or put, ask for suggestions for books, um, 19th century novels that people might be interested in reading uh, a few weeks ago, and people had a lot of great suggestions. And so what we're going to do is put a poll up sometime this week on Patreon with a few options for a longer book that we'll read in several installments over the summer um, with posts on Patreon. And we'll put a date up for that sometime soon with a title. And so if you want to vote for that, we will have information, but we wanted to start with something a little bit shorter. And Frankenstein is very well known. Many of you might have read it in college. I haven't read it in around 10 years, so I'm interested to revisit it. Um, yeah, I started reading it early this year, just coincidentally. And it was, uh, it's very fun. It's a funny book. Yeah. I've been enjoying it greatly. <laughs> I know the story really well because I've seen many adaptations and I read it twice, I think, in college, but I haven't read it in a while. And again, it is quite short and very accessible. So if you aren't familiar with a lot of 19th century fiction, um, you can definitely read this book. It's not difficult. Um, Victor Frankenstein is a very funny protagonist. Yes. What a jackass. Well, the thing you have to remember... (laughs) What an immature little whiny brat. Yeah, he's like 18, which is important (laughs) to know. So again, that will be May 22nd. We'll remind you. uh, And then we'll have another book later in the year. And we'll have more information about that soon. So... Moving on to The Black Stallion. It's kind of amazing that I'd never seen this because I was such a crazy horse girl as a child. Although in other ways, not surprising because my parents weren't really movie people in this way and they wouldn't have shown this to me, which obviously they didn't. But um, I would have been so into this movie as like a nine-year-old. Like I would have loved it so much. I read a lot of, um, so like in terms of horse material, 
Um, I really like the Silver Brumby books, which are not about like a child making friends with a horse, which is obviously a staple of the genre, but um, are more just about like a community of wild horses in Australia. And I was very into those. That was my zone. Yes. Well, we had the Saddle Club in America and whoever wrote those had it had it down surely made bank because there were just like eight gazillion of those books and they were all the same and Gigi was fine who just read them I don't remember any of them with any specificity but the ones that I loved to an insane obsessive degree were the Misty of Shinkatigue books which I imagine did not make it across the pond which were about the ponies at Shinkatigue, which is an island off the coast of Virginia and they are real they're wild ponies and once every year the like people down there um, sort of make them swim across to it's, I don't know if it's to the other Island or to the actual shore and then basically like round them up and there's like bidding and people. Buy that them. sounds a lot like the silver Bumby, but American. Yeah. And um, there were several of these books. I had like old original copies of them because my grandmother had them. And like her house on Cape Cod. And I was just completely obsessed with them. I loved them so much. To the point where my other grandmother drove me down one year to go to like see those ponies <laughs> swim. That's devotion. Yes. Well, her sister lived right near there. So we stayed with her sister. And this was like, a, I was, you know, beside myself. I was so excited. Um, I, of course, begged my parents for many years to let me have horseback riding lessons and they were like absolutely not you will die and I was like probably not and they were like no dangerous um which in retrospect was fine but I was you know as so many young girls are obsessed with horses and um this movie really captures this sort of uh magic of the dream you have of as a child of meeting befriending and taming an impressive wild horse exactly uh just beautiful tremendous basically like the kid is on this ship with his kind of shitty dad although the dad's in like two scenes so you know whatever he's not a mean dad he's just kind of a homer simpson dad yeah yeah and um the horse is is there and is really dangerous and wild and the kid is kind of fascinated with it and everyone is like no it's dangerous and um then the ship wrecks and he winds up alone on this little beach and the horse is also there and for a sop like there's one scene where the dad tells him a story about alexander the great like taming this horse that of course is allegorical for the whole first half of the movie but aside from that one scene solidly the first half of the movie has no dialogue there is no talking no <laughs> and he's just kind of on this beach sort of eating seaweed and stuff as his clothes slowly deteriorate because he's just living on a beach and then working to tame this horse who slowly allows himself to be tamed. It's so beautiful and so free of exposition and so slow and kind of dreamy. It reminded me of Terence Malick. Well, there are two things that make it completely work. And one is the cinematography. It was shot by Caleb Deschanel, who was surprise nominated for an Oscar just last year, in fact. Zoe Deschanel's father. Fun fact. And it is gorgeous. It is so, so, so beautiful. From the opening shots of the movie, I was like, oh, this is a very beautiful film. Like, I don't know... Actually, let me see if it says on Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page, disappointingly sparse for this movie. I wanted to know like all of the details. 
Um, there so is a website. I watched a little. I watched a little interview with the cinematographer on Criterion, and kind of he was talking about. So this was um, the director Carol Ballard's first feature film. He went to college with Francis Ford Coppola, who produced this. So that's kind of how this movie happened. And before that, he'd kind of worked filming things but not being the director and he was a second unit director on Star Wars so he filmed a bunch of Tatooine stuff in the original Star Wars um but with this it seems like they were filming with kind of a small crew and a lot of it was just dependent on natural lighting so part of the reason why there's so many sunsets in this is they were just filming for as long as the light was and a lot of their kind of decisions were like just what looks good on the day instead of Mm. following a really structured plan and um clearly Mr. Deschanel is very good at his job. Yes, <laughs> so. he's a great cinematographer. Well, the reason I was, you know, referring back to Wikipedia was that I was genuinely wondering whether it was shot in 70mm, which it clearly was not based on what you just said, because they would have had to have more infrastructure. But that's the level of, like, richness of color and depth that this has. It just looks astounding. And that's what you get with movies made in the 70s, where people actually shot on film for like children's movies which now would never happen but also like literally kind of about half hour into this film when we've had this long extensive virtually silent sequence of just people interacting with nature i said to my friend like this is like watching an art film for eight-year-olds and then afterwards i was kind of looking up info about the movie and apparently the film got a delayed release because someone who worked for the studio literally said this looks like an art film for children assuming that that meant that it would fail Yeah, I mean, something I just kept thinking about while watching this film is that it's a really good kind of execution of a certain kind of like, just the way children's minds work. Like, I think kind of the assumption for when making children's films, either they're sort of very fast paced and like trying to kind of work towards what is assumed to be a shorter attention span, or they're kind of focused on a particular issue. And this is much more just like watching an adult drama. But there was like no attempt whatsoever to be like, oh, have a fast pace. And clearly it was successful with children. Like one of the friends I was watching it with, like she watched it as a kid and she was just like, man, these things keep coming back to me. And like her sister watched it like on repeat. Clearly it was successful. And it's kind of like, if you actually think about when you were a child, although children do have a shorter or like different attention span from adults, you can also put a child in a field for like four hours and they will find something to do. And that's kind of the mindset of this film. It's sort of, you can see the kind of internal workings of the boy's mind without it being around some particular emotional theme or it being like really intensive kind of plot driven storytelling. It's more just about kind of being in the moment. Well, right. And it's not like nothing is happening. Yeah. Right. So the way it differs from it's sort of, I think it's the closest to Malik it comes is to Days of Heaven, which also was shot entirely with natural light. But it's the way it differs from like the later Malik movies, whereas they're very dreamy and kind of his camera just roves around, right? And um, this, the first half, especially, we're mostly talking about the first half now, and we'll shift to talking about the second half, which is quite different later. But there's not like plot as such. I mean, the plot is that he's trying to hang this horse, but that's kind of it. But you can tell what is going on, and it's all very comprehensible. Like he's trying to survive, and he's trying to take this horse. And everything that's going on is to either of those ends, right? And so if you're watching it as a child, those are not difficult concepts to understand. And everything you're watching is sort of to do with those things. Yeah, I mean, you barely even need to be able to speak English. No, I mean, it's basically a silent film for the first half. And even the second half doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but it has more. And um, it's not abstract is what I'm trying to say. It's just 
not highly um, stimulating in the way that we would think of children's movies now, right? Where like there has to be, as you say, like a joke every five seconds and then like something big happening on the screen and like someone running around. But like kids will, will be into this too. And the other thing that makes it work so well, aside from the fact that it's so beautiful, well, there are three things. It's completely beautiful. The music is great, which if you have no dialogue, it's quite important for the music to work. By Coppola's father. Yes. Who also did the Godfather music and, as you would expect, I think Apocalypse Now too. And um, the horses they use and the boy are all just amazing. So I think the kid can't really deliver dialogue, which in the second half becomes apparent. Like, it's not terrible. Like, he's not very good at it. I was just kind of reading it as him just being like very under-socialized because he'd been stuck on an island or perhaps having a mild speech impediment. And I did not, I did not interpret I feel that like, as him not being able to talk. <laughs> I feel like, well, I think he probably did have a mild speech impediment, which like, you know, fine. He's a child. I feel like this is a classic instance of you coming up with a, <laughs> like large explanation for a thing in a movie that's just not very good. Um, but he was obviously selected because he was a highly skilled horseback rider, which is not common not common in like a 10 year old (laughs) and i kept thinking watching it i feel like we've done multiple children's movies in a recent span of time being like this would never get made now but this really would never get made now both because it's just so all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of it being so slow and just artistic and whatever but also like the security uh and health risks to this the child. whole first half of this film i was like okay this child's gonna be murdered by the horse right horses are dangerous <laughs> yes and he's like riding bareback on this horse at like high speeds falling off and he's doing his own stunts and i was just like wow this would not be allowed this would definitely <laughs> not be allowed today but he's incredible at it like he's so good at all the stuff with the horse not only the like technical Uh, achievement of doing all the writing which is really impressive throughout the film but also just the way he interacts with the horse and they used a few horses for the different kind of things that the horse is doing throughout the movie but just his his face and his body language and like it's just it's really really compelling and the best thing in the whole movie is the moment where he finally kind of gets the horse to take uh like leaf of something out of his hand, which is the symbolic moment where it's like allows yeah. itself to be tamed. Right. And it's a one shot. It's a long shot of them. And it goes on for minutes. Like it's a really, really long. And they used, I think a specific horse for just that thing, which is interesting. And I just remember thinking like, how the fuck did they get this horse to do this? Because they're not cutting, right? It's just one shot. And the horse is basically expressing like this incredible level of indecision. Like it sort of goes forward and then it goes back. It goes forward and it goes back. And he's kind of going forward and then it, it goes back. And so then he'll walk away and pretend like he's not interested anymore. And then the horse will follow him because of course, of course, actually wants him to pay attention to it. And I like, I just genuinely don't understand. Like horses are super smart as you can tell, but Every, the way they trained all of them to perform in this movie is very impressive, but that specific sequence, I was just like, I don't understand how this was achieved. Like, this is a level of acting from an animal that is beyond <laughs> my comprehension. Like, it's just amazing. It's completely amazing and completely transfixing and would be also for a kid. Like, that is something that, again, you're like fantasizing about as a child if you have 
if you like horses, but also just like animals, right? Like all children yeah. have dreams of like wild animals liking them. And I thought it was amazing. I, I just thought that moment was completely, I, just, I thought it was incredible. I mean, something I found very interesting kind of in that regard for this film was that um, there was no kind of attempt to sentimentalize or humanize the horse. The yes. horse doesn't have a personality and it's not, because obviously like these films kind of, like horse children's films kind of have a range like from this is like the extreme end of like this is literally a horse to ones where like the horse is like lassie and has all these human like emotions um and the thing they really focus on this is kind of the power of the horse you know it's really kind of dangerous and the film really acknowledges how dangerous it is and like it has this loyalty to the boy but it's not kind of sentimentalized and i found that like an interesting and kind of i, I really enjoyed that was the tack they took with it yeah, the one moment where they, it's sort of nonsense, is when there's a there's a there's snake, a snake. <laughs> and the it's, horse like kills the snake for him. <laughs> I know, and it's before he's been tamed, but even after it'd be silly. But I was like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that would happen. Um, speaking of the snake, though, there's that and the um, the scene, I will later in the film. Yeah, well, this uh, well, what I was gonna say was the snake and the um. The scene where the boat goes down, I found very effective in terms of, they're very different scenes. Maybe I'm just afraid of snakes, but I found them really effective in terms of actually being frightening. Like, yeah. the scene- And there was a really effective sense of chaos while watching the ship sinking. Yeah. Like, basically the only thing I knew about this film before we watched it, I think either you told me or perhaps it was listener Heather who commissioned this episode, but um, basically I knew that Guillermo del Toro loves this film. And if you look up on Twitter, he's tweeted several times, like clearly re-watching this movie multiple times and then tweeting like, this film's a masterpiece. I love it. So it made me really curious. And then watching the film, it was very clear to me within the first 10 minutes why he gels so much with this film because it just felt like it really fits with the type of films that he makes which is like very strongly visual and with a very kind of sincere understanding of children's thought processes and emotions yeah and so especially at the beginning where you see the adults like the only only time when you see adults towards the beginning is his father gambling with a bunch of other adult men and then some of those men being really cruel to the horse. And that kind of also felt very Del Toro to me. Kind of the idea of like, once you reach adulthood, you're like more invested in money and cruelty than the beauty of nature and befriending a horse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And like the scene where this shipwreck is happening, it's all kind of from his point of view. And it's yeah. really chaotic and you can't really tell what's going on. And it's shot really well. And... It just, I just felt a genuine sense of distress for this child in a way that I felt was uncommon for a scene of that type. Like, I think I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of movies where, like, yeah. something like that happens and you kind of know exactly what's going to happen. And obviously the kid wasn't going to die. Like, that <laughs> was 10 minutes into the film. Like, of course he's not going to die. But it just felt really frightening. Like, it just, it felt scary. Well, it's kind of, it depends where the director decides to put the camera, right? Because like the way that I think, especially if you're making a, at least a somewhat blockbustery kind of film, the instinct is to show the scope of the scene and have a lot of shots that are about like from the outside showing the Titanic sinking or whatever. And with this film, 
it's all it's so much from his perspective that like it's completely jumbled so there's like the the sinking scene and then when he first encounters the horse on the beach and the horse is kind of tied up and it's really chaotic it's all in like really closely edited like close-up shots that kind of show the like if you're really stressed and you're kind of looking at really specific details and can't really put them all together in your head and that's more effective than just seeing kind of a wide shot of a a ship sinking which is less kind of emotionally effective yes exactly yeah it's just the way they managed to convey like a child's experience in that first half of the film i think really really works and the fact that it's then outside of like the context of society and adult influence after the the ship goes down i think is part of what makes it so sort of enchanting and i imagine would make it so appealing to children because yeah. i mean it's the sort whole, of the dream the whole right? film really works on child logic and like yeah. to the extent where i thought that the kind of the final conflict at the end of the film was going to be that once he's trained up this horse the horse's original legal owners were going to show up with papers and be like, this is our horse that you stole off the ship. And that never happens because it's nine-year-old logic, so that doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, so let's start, let's move to the second half. I found the second half much less good. I mean, it was just, the second half was basically just a conventional horse film, which is just, I mean, we've seen it before. It's like a, you know, it's a skillfully shot version of a movie about someone taming a horse. Yeah. Basically. I mean, part of the problem is that they've done this first half that's so impressionistic and so effective that then moving into the, a world that's more grounded, it, it's just, it's not going to be as, as enchanting. Like, there's not really anything you can do about that. But um, I liked that it was set in the 50s because that kind of made it a bit more plausible that this boy could just like have a horse. <laughs> well, I, I was amused by... As you know, I'm always entertained by, like, period movies that are clearly made in a particular time because certain elements of them are very unconvincing. And, like, most of the period stuff in this film was was fine. But um, the mother had the most 70s voice I have ever heard (laughs) in my life to the degree where every time she talked, I just was, like, laughing to myself. And there were a couple other details. I did not notice that. I was just like, oh, it's quite nice that she has a nice relationship with her son because it's kind of a cross between, like, when in children's stories, the parents just, like, dematerialize and are completely irrelevant to their lives, which happens in this. But also kind of when they have scenes together, it's quite naturalistic, which I enjoyed. Well, I thought she was a good actress. I just thought her voice was entertaining. Yeah. But I found the mother character... I was just like, what is happening with this woman? So she's the only female character in the movie, of course, because this is a movie about boys and men. But her husband has died. In her a husband, who's like 20 years older than oh, her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, kind of just, it just doesn't make any sense, but whatever. And then her son comes back suddenly with this giant horse. And there's like one scene where she just like says to the horse, like, I'm so glad to have him back. Which is like, okay. But then after that, she's just kind of hanging out, checked out, whatever. And then... It's just like Enid Blyton books, where the parents just are there for five seconds and then like right. wave them off to go on their adventures. <laughs> and then basically the whole plot of the second half, as I alluded to at the top, was is that boy Alec kind of winds up accidentally falling in with this guy who used to be a horse trainer who's played by um, Mickey Rooney. 
I have never seen Mickey Rooney in a movie other than uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's in which he plays a Chinese man. So this is a new experience for me. Uh, Mickey Rooney was uh, nominated for an Oscar for this film. He's very good playing this kind of familiar type of person. But of course, then they want to train this horse to be a racing horse because he's very fast. And the kid has to ride him because he's the only one who can, you know, ride this wild horse. And (laughs) the ultimate culmination of this is that there's going to be this race between the two horses who've been winning all the horse races in the country in this recent span of time and this mystery horse who's, you know, the black. And when... His mother finds out about this. She's like, you can't ride in this race. This is crazy. Like, you're going to die. And then within five minutes, she's like, okay, I guess you can. Whatever. And I was like, what? That is not what? And I think the problem with the second half of the movie is that they never really... I mean, they never explain why racing matters. Why this... Exactly. Yes. So there's, like, a magical black man who shows up a couple of times. Like, truly, that it, he is the epitome of that trope. He is um, psychic and communicates with his horse. Right, exactly. And he says something to Alec about how, like, I don't know if you should have that horse race. Like, I think you should maybe just let him stay wild. Which suggests that something bad is going to happen. And spoiler alert, and it, doesn't, it does not. It doesn't come back. <laughs> right. Um, but he's... Right, based on everything we're seeing in the movie. Like, the horse clearly does not enjoy this. He does not like doing this. He wants to just be able to run around. And so you're watching them kind of make this horse, who's like the magical creature of the first half of the movie, be tamed in a way that is, I did not find pleasurable to watch, right? And I like horse racing. Like, I watch... The Kentucky Derby, I try to watch the other two every year. I'm not like an aficionado, but I enjoy watching it. And the horses who are really trained for that clearly like it. Like they've been trained to do this, right? But that's not the situation with this horse, right? And so the horse doesn't like it. They haven't really explained why this is an important thing, except they have to prove to the world that he's the fastest horse ever. And... Also, it's just like, it's crazy that a child would be racing in one of these races. Because, yes, yeah. you would die. I mean, it's it's definitely children's book logic. <laughs> right. And it was interesting w- watching the movie, actually. So, this was a really popular series of books. And every time anything happened in this, I, I thought to myself, okay, so if this were in the book, like the scene where the horse kills the snake, right? Which was kind of silly in the movie, but, you know, fine. I, but I thought, I bet in the book that was terrible. Like, I just kept thinking, like, I bet this book is just like pure schlock from beginning to end, right? Well, there's like 20 books in this series. Right. And I have some wild information about a later one, which um, a listener informed me about, which I will tell you about at the end of the episode. Right. So I could, it was, it's... Always interesting to me where you can kind, when you're watching a movie and you can kind of sense the source material or even the screenplay, which is sometimes the case. The screenplay this was written by the women who wrote E.T. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think, I mean, I think the second half has problems, but I don't think, it's not the screenplay is bad. It's the it's They have source. to make a movie about, uh, that involves a horse race and you're like, well, gotta put the horse race in. Right. But sometimes I think even you can watch a movie 
and be like, I don't think the screenplay for this is good, but somehow they've made a good movie out of it. Like I remember um, someone in the film industry whom I shall not name once telling me that like Darren Aronofsky only makes movies out of bad screenplays. And he has made some bad movies since this conversation. But at the time, he was not making bad movies. And it was really interesting because I was like, oh, if you actually watch like Black Swan, which I think is a really good movie, and you think about it from that perspective, it's apparent that this is the case, right? But there are some people who are just very talented. Like The Nick, the show that Steven Soderbergh did, I think has not a very good... The screenplay, I don't think is very good. But he's just an amazingly gifted director. And this is a case where I suspect, I have not read the book, I suspect that the book that they're basing this on, not great. But the team working on the movie, everyone was clearly just so talented, particularly the director and obviously the actor and the horses, as we were discussing. And so they just made something that was really kind of beautiful and profound especially in the first half and then when they get bogged down in what the book is requiring them to do in the second half they're kind of just like oh yeah because it's sort of like i think the thing that they kind of do to try and drag it back a bit is like obviously the first half of the film is sort of all about the wonder of nature and sort of the purity of this friendship between the boy and the horse and that purity is still there and is very beautiful in the second half but the fact that they're running a race like you said is not fully justified and when watching it, I kind of was pleasantly surprised by the fact that they don't have an antagonist. So they have this race and the other two jockeys, who are obviously both adults, do make a bit of a snide comment about the boy. But they never like try to trip, trip him up. It's not one of these things where they're like mean or he's fighting back against something or people are being particularly aggressive towards him. It really is like, yay, we won. And it's not like, yay, we won some money. It's more just like, well, we've proven he's great and now he's never going to run a, another race kind of thing. <laughs> And even before they're putting him into the stalls to start, like he's freaking out. He doesn't want to go in. They kind he kind of has a fight with the other horse. And again, I just was like, why am I supposed to be like rooting for him (laughs) to win this race? Like what is meaningful about this? And then he kind of starts out of the gate really slowly because he's freaked out. And then has this miraculous come from behind finish that let me tell you as someone who has watched some horse races not possible fully impossible like no fucking way um what's really cool to watch some horses run though it reminded me of like um that old like the first film that's just like a horse running like the first ever film that was made yes well it was funny so they used a bunch of different horses for the different things in the movie so like the horse who does all the running is one horse and then the horse who does the more interactive stuff is one horse and then the horse who does the swimming is the other horse and so the horse who does the running I don't know what exactly, I mean, he was obviously trained to, to do running, but it well, was One of them very... was a racehorse. Like, there was literally a racehorse, like, Ole something or other. Well, no, he was, so Ole something, I can't recall, was a, was a show horse. Oh, okay. So he did dressage and stuff. And he was the one who, who did the sort of interactive stuff with the boy, except for that one scene I mentioned where he's finally taming him. But they had a different horse who did all the running, and... I I wish I could have found the details about this. Um, There is a website that the son of the guy who wrote the books maintains about the Black Stallion, which has a whole lot of clippings and stuff, which were really quite, it's just a lot. There's just a lot happening on this website. But they're obviously all beautiful and very impressive horses. But the second they put them 
on a track with like actual clearly champion racehorses, I was like, oh, those are different. Those are different species of thing. <laughs> like, okay. Which also, I mean, doesn't matter, but I was just like, yeah, you're not beating those. That's not happening. Um, but it's a children's movie, so he has to win. Just fine. It's fine. But yeah, I think basically the difference between the first half and the second half is that the first half just is an art movie that children can appreciate, and then the second half is a children's movie. Right? Like, that is just sort of just has to be sentimental and whatever. It was interesting to me to watch it and think about the clear sort of influence it's had on later movies. The one that really came to mind for me was Lean on Pete, which Andrew Haig did last year, which I didn't actually like very much at all, but it's about a um, teenage boy who works at a, who works for like Steve Buscemi is the, guy who owns the horses and actually the plot of that is that um he's sort of illegally continuing to race this older horse at like low stakes racehorsing events who is clearly like going to die soon because he's pushing him too hard and the boy kind of makes off with the horse so it's a little bit the inverse of this but clearly taking so much from this film in a way that i was like oh wow i saw this movie and i had no no idea and then the other one i was thinking of i don't know if this was a specific influence but it just it just made me think of it because there are a lot of similar sequences was the writer by Chloe Zhao, which also came out last year, which we discussed. Yeah, I definitely watched that. Um, which is just a, like an st- extraordinary movie. One of my favorites from last year, but it did make me sort of, made me sort of sad that like all the big horse movies are about boys and men. When, as we know, all, all the horse girl movies are all TV movies. There's many, many TV movies, <laughs> which is fine. But I was like, Oh, the horse girls should get like a good big cinema movie. When I was looking up the director, I saw that he he made Fly Away Home, which is, I mm-hmm. mean, he basically mostly did like really good children's movies with animals. And I remember seeing Fly Away Home when I was a child and just loving it. That's a oh film where um, Anna Paquin adopts a bunch of birds with her dad. Oh, I for sure saw that. And I loved it so much. I love that. He also hilariously did an adaptation of um, the book about wolves that Farley Mowat did that I was forced to read in an environmental science class I took in college in which the professor told us that global warming did not exist. Um, and That's this, a lot. A lot. Okay. There's a lot that I, he went to college with George W. Bush. He was very bad. And uh, he, we exclusively read things from like a pre a certain decade because once you hit a certain point, every environmental science text informs you that climate change is a real thing. But this wolf book, uh, this guy like observed wolves for many years and was like, actually they don't hunt big game. They just hunt mice. And he was later proven to be a total fraud. But after a movie was made about his book by this man. So that abused me. I was like, Oh no, (laughs) I'm sure the movie's entertaining. Just, but yeah, but before before we sign off this episode, um, when we posted on Twitter that we were doing this episode, a listener very quickly messaged to say, are you aware that in this very long series of books, there is a volume with aliens? And uh, <laughs> there is, in fact, <laughs> the, the, sta- the island stallion races involves aliens from another planet. And I looked this up and there is on tour.com a review from an expert horse 
aficionado and also sci-fi book reviewer who has some opinions on this as a formative text. And she's like, actually surprisingly good 1950s sci-fi, but also what the fuck was he doing? <laughs> I mean, that's a question. Just got bored halfway through your have. 20 volume series of horse books. <laughs> I guess at a certain point you run out of things to say. And at that point, what you have to say is aliens. I don't I mean, I'm just, sure. just looking at the list of like plot summaries. One of them is like book 15 is like a plane crash strands the black on a Caribbean island with Farley's other legendary stallion, Flame. <laughs> <laughs> and also their struggle for power becomes a fight for survival when the two horses band together to fight a deadly vampire bat. <laughs> no. This is like how like everyone thinks of Tarzan as like the first Tarzan book. Right, <laughs> and at the bookshop where I work, we um, last summer acquired this huge library, and the guy who who had all the books who died had had a like collection of basically all of the first edition of Edgar Rice Burroughs's books. And let me tell you, they go in some weird directions. There's a lot happening with all of those books, uh, but they don't get discussed so much anymore. But if you had to keep writing to you know make your fans happy keep that money coming in uh you had to get creative i guess i mean i respect that yeah aliens is really quite a move well uh i would recommend this film yeah to anyone it's great uh and easily accessible which is good if you know some children have some children uh of the correct age i would also recommend showing this to them a good a good influence on their developing brains i would say uh, so next week we will be discussing a topic to be determined. Something. A movie. We haven't decided yet. But thank you, as always, for listening to this week's episode. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much again to Heather for sponsoring this episode. It was a lot of fun. Uh, again, if you would like to make us watch something, or just generally support us on Patreon, listen to our extra content, our uh, endgame Minisode, uh, you can find us at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabio, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? Uh, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot, where I currently have a great deal of expert Avengers endgame analysis. And you can find me personally on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are also on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.